0: My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.
1: I'm nil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question. How can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. Jody Rash is the managing trustee of VegInvest, an investment fund that provides early-stage capital and guidance to companies striving to replace the use of animals and food, as well as lab research and testing. Prior to VegInvest, Jody headed the social performance group of Moody's Corporation, working on projects including microfinance and social investing, and had a long career in the corporate financial sector. In this conversation, Jody and I talk about how his background led him to Veg Invest, and we get into the evolution of vegan investing. Jody has been plant-based for the better part of 30 years, and has watched the innovation in the food sector skyrocket in recent years. We talk about what he looks for in the companies that VegInvest takes on, and he shares details about an upcoming incubator program that will be launched by VegInvest to help new companies grow and link up to mentoring networks to be more successful. Speaking as an investor, Jody provides priceless advice and insight that anyone who is just starting out in the plan-based space can take to improve their products and stand out in the market. This conversation is an absolute must-listen for anyone looking to break into the plant-based food or technology space. I hope you take as much from it as I did. Jody Rash, thanks for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast.
2: Happy to be here.
1: So Jody... We've uh, known each other for a few years. We've run into each other at events, um, had a many conversations about what's happening in the plant-based food space and in the good food movement as well as clean meat and a few other things. Um, many of our listeners may not have heard of you before, but I think uh, you were one of the people I've been wanting to get on this podcast for a while. Um, but I waited because I wanted to make sure that um, I could cover the widest amount of ground in this conversation, uh, given how much history and context you have uh, about where the plant-based food movement really got started. So, um, you know, I'll, of course, let you get into your background, but I just want to set it up by saying that I've uh, lately especially been thinking a lot about the sort of The quieter unsung heroes in this movement who have been involved with um, whether it's investing or helping nonprofits uh, for years, people who have been behind the scenes doing what they do. Don't really make a big noise about it, but do it because of their own reasons. And I find those stories to be interesting and fascinating, and I think you definitely fit that mold. Um, So uh, a great place to probably start would be, for anyone who doesn't know your background, we'll cover, we probably covered some of that in the introduction to this episode, but um, how did you first get interested in animal rights, vegan food, the food movement in general? When did that begin?
2: Uh, well, it happened probably 1984. So, yeah, so I, I guess I'm supposed to try to be interesting and fascinating. I'll try to work up to that. Um, <laughs> that's, that's interesting enough. It <laughs> is. So that's when uh, my wife and I became uh, vegetarian. Uh, and we were vegetarian for over 20 years and so we we're doing it for for ethical reasons. I was working in finance at the time. Um, I think I was working at one a Fortune 500 company in their uh, treasury department, and then working in banking after that. And so my wife had read some quote by Krishnamurti that had probably convinced a lot of people to uh, to to think about what their lifestyles are and all that. So she had decided that she was going to go. A vegetarian. And, you know, for me growing up, those were the people we used to make fun of. So it was like, okay, you know, we can do that at home. But hey, I work in finance. And, you know, it's steak dinners and lunches and things like that. It's it's just not going to work. And that, that took me about six months to get over that. And, you know, just sitting around, like looking at eating you know, animal products and all that, I just like thought, like, what am I doing? And why am mm-hmm. I doing this? So Became vegetarian, and uh, we thought we were doing doing good, and you know we were we were, uh, uh, living our morals and all that. And then um, one and one of the times I was doing um, a seminar up in Canada. Uh, so after well, a little bit more about the background, after working in uh, in finance, in treasury and in banking, eventually started my own company which did financial training. And one of our customers was one of the big Canadian banks, and we used to do quite a number of seminars for them. And they used to do their programs during the summer, so we would drive up. My wife's originally from Toronto, so it was fun for her to actually see her home country again. Uh, And we were driving up with our kids. Uh, The oldest one at the time was 12 and then 10 and and 8, and someone had told us about Farm Sanctuary. And so they said, oh, you know, you guys might like stopping off there. So we stopped off, it was pouring rain, and we went on this uh, tour of the sanctuary, and they started talking about what happens, you know, where the veal industry comes from, mm-hmm. what happens to uh, male egg-laying chicks and and all the other things that, you know, we we thought we knew about, but obviously didn't. And I remember... My ten-year-old uh, daughter, at the time, right after the tour, she just looked at my wife and I and said, "I'm going vegan." <laughs> so smart, now, yeah. Smart so, little girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, the first thing I start doing is thinking about telling her all the reasons why that's silly and we shouldn't do that. Luckily, my wife spoke first <laughs> and said, "Well, you know, we really need to look into that to see if it's healthy or not." And so, you know, we, we did the research. We meaning my wife. Uh, did the research on it and found that not only was it healthy, but it was actually healthier. So we switched to, at that time, just just a a vegan diet and started, at that time, getting involved in more of the animal rights communities. We were going to some of the veg fests that were around and then listening to some of the doctors like Esselstyn and Campbell and uh, some of the other doctors who, uh, who were talking about the health aspects of that. So it was about 12 years ago now that we we went uh we went vegan and then 2 years after that we actually started doing the whole foods plant based diet mm-hmm. where I lost about 30 pounds on that and brought my cholesterol levels down and so on they've inched up a little bit more now but they were they they got better for for quite a while uh and I was working at the time um that, that happened, I actually was working. I, I we had sold our, our uh, training company, and I was actually at the time working at Moody's, which mm-hmm. a big bond rating agency. Uh, initially, was working in um, in a group that did uh, subprime mortgage uh, modeling. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and when I was in banking, I didn't mention this because I was trying to avoid telling you my sordid background. Uh, I was working in derivatives and derivative sales. So. Uh, then I was working in subprime mortgage modeling and structured finance and things like that. So basically everything that happened in the uh, financial meltdown was my Your fault. fault. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> at least that's what my my family tells me. So it, it must be. Um, so, but, it, but the good part about that is I could see that when I went to see the good short, I actually understood everything he was talking about. Uh, so that's how I started. But then I started formed a group in Moody called called the Social Performance Group, where Mm. we're actually looking at non-financial ratings. And we're looking at things like, um, well, we developed a rating in the microfinance area, which is, it's in the U.S. too, but mostly international, giving small loans to women entrepreneurs to help uh, them lift themselves out of poverty. And the question always came up, in that is, how do you know if these microfinance banks are taking advantage of the poor or actually helping them. Mm -hmm. So we built a model that would help analyze that and we would rate. uh, We we ended up rating about 24 different uh, microfinance institutions um, while I was there. And I started looking, getting more involved in impact investing Mm -hmm. through Moody's because we were looking at potentially other types of ratings like green bond ratings, And uh, also just the idea of rating companies and funds for their social performance. So I started getting more and more involved in that. And I said, well, you know, now that I'm vegan, uh, maybe I should invest in vegan companies or at least get rid of the companies that are obviously exploiting animals. Mm -hmm. So I went and started doing research on uh, what... And which year was this? This was probably... 2006, 2007. Wow, okay, uh, I started looking around for companies that that uh, or mutual funds that had at mm-hmm. least an animal rights screen, which is very different than an animal welfare screen. I yeah. found out a few years later. Uh, and turned out there was one fund in England, so it wasn't open to uh, America, and that was it. And any other ones that said they had animal rights screens, if you actually looked at their holdings, it was obvious that they didn't. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, I'm interested in this. Potentially, other people might be interested in it. And I started doing some research on the vegan industry to see if it was a viable industry for investment. So, you know, at that time, there weren't quite as many companies, but you would see things like... Uh, vegan uh, magazines and what the readership was going mm-hmm. on. There were some products coming out, and you see the growth in those, and it was seemed very promising. Um, so I decided, well, maybe you know, we could set up a fund, and I set up at least a website called Wide Circle. I got in touch. Everyone said, "There's this one guy you got to talk to, Chris Kerr." <laughs> so he was the only guy in the whole market who was doing anything at all mm-hmm. on this, and and uh, was he at HSUS? Yeah, at he was at HSUS, okay. running Humane Capital at the time. Uh, and so, you know, we got to be friends and talked a lot about this, and he was very patient with me. Uh, and, you know, it's 2000, by this time it was about 2008, which mm-hmm. was not the time to uh, to start a fund. <laughs> uh, so, you know, fast forward, uh, and I was still working, so it would have to be part time and all that. So it didn't happen at that point in time, but I, that's really when I started getting more and more involved in the vegan movement. I've joined a couple of not for profit boards. Uh, the two that are vegan would be Veg Fund and uh, and Woodstock Farm Sanctuary as well. Mm-hmm. So and then also personally supporting more and more of the uh, vegan uh, not for profits like uh, PCRM and and quite a few others as well that I, we think are doing good.
1: I want to take you back to two thousand seven eight when you and Chris were initially talking about this. Um, I wasn't aware of the space back then. So for me, it's always fascinating about anything that happened pre-2010, because I really only, I feel, woke up in 2010. Uh, Before that, I was living my life half asleep, um, at least about food. Um, But back in 2008, um, what kind of companies existed out there? I know there were probably a few, I know some of the brands like Daya and, of course, Tofurkey and those existed. They've been around for years and Follow Your Heart. Uh, they were even some restaurant chains and maybe some standalone gourmet restaurants in cities like New York and L.A. and San Francisco. Um, I think Veggie Grill had just started maybe a couple of years before that. So when you were discussing this as investors, as uh, people who know what they're doing with money... Um, on what basis did you decide that there was market potential like what metrics did you analyze um and how much was it driven by metrics versus you felt compelled to help make this happen and i like maybe it was a bit of both so
2: yeah no i th- I think it was a it was a bit of both uh you know, there there are a lot of different types of metrics you can look at you can look at you know sales of companies and but you're right, there was only very limited number of companies, so that was one metric. You could do things like how many searches there are and and how much interest there are, how many articles appear mm-hmm. about a certain topic. So you, you can look at that as well. You can look at readership of certain types of publications. So those are the types of things that I looked at back then um, mm-hmm. that seemed to And, and the, all those were actually fairly rapid growth. So those are the things that led me to believe that this was a real market. And that was even before... I mean, the health issues were were known; they weren't quite as popular at the time, but they certainly were known. The environmental issues were much less mm-hmm. uh, of a driving force at that time. And so, as you follow the markets over time, as the environmental issues became more important, the health issues and the studies became more and more numerous. Uh, you could just see that trend keep on increasing.
1: Yeah, and you know, the second point being, I'm sure part of it was, if if the facts that you had learned and the reasons why you or Chris or others were supportive of this space and uh, eating this way you and, and this is I'm speaking because from my experience when I learned about my food and I found out where my food was coming from and I decided to change the way I was eating I the first thought I had was how come other people don't know this so part of me was just like we've got to tell more people and we've got to We've got to add fuel to the existing fire that's burning to get people to change the way they eat. Um, which then led me to do whatever I did. But um I'm sure that was a huge part of it. You were involved in these nonprofits. You had a very first hand view, whether if you especially if you're on a board of something like Woodstock Farm Sanctuary and I know Chris was at the Humane Society, you're seeing first I mean, firsthand, at least you're hearing about what happens to animals as part of this industry. And uh you also kind of now have have lived and eaten this way for a few years, and you've seen the health benefits of changing the way you eat if you do it right. Um, like I find, in some ways, it seems that there was a, and I've been I mentioned this to you before. If you look back, and I've had this conversation with Chris, who's been on this podcast before. For those who haven't heard that episode, um, Chris Kerr from New Crop Capital. But I feel like, in some ways, the early. Folks like you and Chris and others were the ones who sat together and said, you know, here's simple economics. If uh, more people are seeking vegan food and if more people are educated about what happens when you eat this way and what happens to animals as part of our destructive animal, uh, industrial animal agriculture industry, um, they will start demanding better foods. Now, what if we can seed companies that are actually producing those products and help them scale and help them get better was there any big meeting of the minds back in 2008 where you had a you had a master plan of of disrupting the food industry
2: <laughs> uh it would have been great if we we had no we were just like trying to figure things out as we went along and you know it's more uh, a feel because mm-hmm. it, it's hard to do that unless you have huge money behind you and back then there was not huge money behind this because then what you need to do is you could take that money and you can figure out what types of companies mm-hmm. are needed and then seed them and then try to grow them. But you also have to be a little careful there because at the time you don't want the companies to grow faster than the demand. Mm. So what I'm finding is right now there's a growing demand and so the companies are coming in to, to fill that. Mm-hmm. So to try to like create this whole space all at once probably would have been a massive failure. So yeah. even though it sounds good, I think in the end it probably is better that it developed a little bit more slowly than that. Yeah,
1: so I so this vision image I have in my mind of like some secret society plotting uh to change the food system uh, was not exactly as dramatic
2: <laughs> as maybe I pictured. No, remember, it was a secret society, so I can't tell you about <laughs> of it. Of course, right. I know. Dumb of me to even say that. So uh... I'll teach you the handshake later. <laughs>
1: I think I know. <laughs> but anyway, um, so let's let's move to you now Getting going beyond Moody's and what happened next in your... Own journey where um, you have you became an investor or became part of Veg Invest, which is now investing in companies. How did that shift come about? Um, around which year were you? Were those seeds initially um, so planted? At what time was that? When, which year was that?
2: That was uh, about four years ago. So I left Moody's in 2015. And after I left Moody's, uh, what I had actually planned on doing uh, was more angel investing mm-hmm. from from my own funds, and so I was kind of looking into that. And at the same time, uh, I was on—I had joined the board of a veg fund and, and um, one of the backers for veg fund, who's very philanthropically oriented. He was actually investing through some not-for-profit. So it wasn't for his own benefit, but it was through them. And so, you know, I started talking to him and basically said, look, you know, we both want to invest in vegan companies. Um, you know, I am c- can do the due diligence, but you write bigger checks. So maybe, you know, if you tell me what types of companies you're interested in and I find them, maybe we can work together on some of that. And that conversation then turned into, well, why don't we just set up a fund that he'll back it, and I'll, uh, I'll do the investment side of it. And so that's how Veg Invest was born. It was just, you know, like a offhanded type of start comments that were made, but you know, a mutual interest in moving all this forward. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that the way we're structured is very different than most VC companies. Most VC companies will have a whole bunch of limited partners so that they start investing. They have to stop investing after a certain point because they have to return the money to the, uh, to, to the limited partners, so the investments have to start running off. Mm-hmm. The way we're structured, all of our uh, profits are actually donated to vegan not-for-profits. So we don't have investors who are looking at us for the return of their capital and re- return on that. So we're more of what we call an evergreen fund, mm-hmm. where we can stay in business for as long as you know we're we're backed by we have the money in there and we're backed. Well,
1: okay, I have a lot of questions about uh, Veg Invest because that unique model definitely makes you stand out. But um, you know, before we kind of dive into what's happened since you started at Veg Invest and the work that you've been doing the last couple of years, from 2008 to 2015, how were you involved in the space? Was it did you do any investments at that point on your own, or were you just helping in boards of nonprofits and and helping out Chris or working with others who were part of this not so secret society?
2: Yeah, so mostly it was uh, learning about the, the vegan, mm-hmm. about veganism, the vegan movement, uh, trying to find a decent pair of vegan shoes, you know that kind <laughs> of thing. Uh, and you know, I mean, Chris and I stayed in contact. I wouldn't say he didn't really need my help. He was doing fine on his own. Mm. Uh, but, you know, we did stay in contact on that and just started making more and more connections, which eventually led to me being recommended for a couple of different boards. Um, and and the, veg, the VEG Fund board was the uh, first one with it. So it was just, you know, networking, making contacts, finding out who else was in this space. And so just getting involved a long way with more and more Organizations that we thought were doing uh, mm-hmm. good works. I mean, Mercy for Animals was one of the initial ones that uh, that we talked to, but then kind of expanded out from there. COK, Compassion Over Killing, was another. So you know, there, there there are quite a few of them that we we liked the the work they're doing and and got involved in that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see that because a lot of people are very new to uh, the world of plant-based food and clean meat and the kind of stuff that we talk about on this podcast, but um, don't realize that many people who are now either investors or entrepreneurs in this space have come to this point after a pretty long journey. Some of it just very personal. Some of it it is um, in terms of donating their time or resources or um, even their money uh, to organizations who are fighting the good fight Um, and have only recently turned their attention to the food industry directly um so let's get into veg invest i mean uh, before we we talk about your investments um have you now since it's been around for a few years it's been around for three years now um considered broadening your investor base uh given there may be other people who also are interested in using their funds in such a way where if you do see any returns it just goes to um it goes to charities uh, versus actually for them making a profit out of it.
2: Uh, well, if, if to find an investor who wants to give us money so that we can invest it and then give the money away, there aren't a lot of those out there. <laughs> okay. so okay. you know That's we're what pretty. I figure. <laughs> yeah. So if we wanted to attract more, we'd have to be more of a normal VC fund, mm-hmm. and you know that it's very it, you know it's interesting that the way you invest if you're a typical VC fund versus the structure we have, is very different. And we still have to be profitable, uh, both because our backer wants that, but also if we're not profitable and all of our companies go bankrupt, we'll be out of business anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in terms of the risk, the, the financial risk versus the social risk, you can actually have a somewhat different dynamic that way. And if I was like a strict VC company, I don't know that I'd be investing in the cultured meat industry because the time horizon that you need is pretty long. Mm. And it's very interesting in terms of like if you're an investor, what type of what are the characteristics of an investor who invests in different parts of this movement? So, for example, you know, I'm 62 now, and if I'm looking at uh, investing in cultured meat, and it's 10 years before there's going to be a return on the investment, I'm starting not really to care too much about a return on my investment at that point. Mm. Whereas if I'm in my 40s or 50s and I have a 10-year time horizon for an investment, I could have a huge, you know, the, the, the cultured meat industry is probably going to be huge. So, you know, it's like who you are makes a real big difference in terms of what type of investments you make. So if I was a venture typical venture firm and Mm -hmm. wanted to do the cultured meats and other things that have longer time horizon, I would have to gear my I I would have to look at LPs who had that time horizon. So I wouldn't look at, you know, people in let's say my age bracket, for example, with that. Mm -hmm. And then you get into, well, who has money? You know, the younger you get, generally the less money people have. So it it's an interesting structure in terms of how how you start investing in the Yeah these areas. so it
1: kind of dictates your investment thesis at the end of the day um, your criteria for picking a company for investment it's probably going to be different from, say, some um, giant Silicon Valley venture capital fund that has got a number of uh, LPs and has different time horizons and maybe is willing to make those big bets that won't see any return, um, at least in the next 10, 15 years. Uh, But that's not for everyone, which is, you know, that's from an investor standpoint, that's crucial to keep in mind. I think most people don't think about the investor. They're thinking about, especially if you're an entrepreneur, you're thinking about, the money and you assume all money is the same Um, but it's not because you know first and foremost the investors you choose in some ways become a part of your company they they become part of your decision making depending on how much you give them Um, and then they also are going to be demanding of the business decisions and the choices that you make um, over the years because it's their money being spent after all. So I think it's, it's, I'm glad you brought up the investor's perspective, because um, I do want to dive deeper into that uh, in terms of how you've approached companies so far. So what is, from a type of company standpoint, What how would you describe your portfolio um, at the highest level? Because I know it includes a mix of companies.
2: Yeah. So I'd describe it as eclectic. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, th- there are advantages of different investment styles. I mean, there's some companies that will only do food, or there'll some that will specialize in, let's say, meat replacements. Uh, we decided to take a somewhat broader approach to that because I think there are many different areas where uh, companies can make a big contribution to reducing animal use and animal suffering. So uh, we have not only food companies, we have technology company, as well, and then we have companies that are doing uh, not just cultured meat, but we have one company that's doing cultured leather, mm. uh, Vitro Labs, and then another that's doing uh, human organs on a chip as a substitute for animal testing, mm-hmm. which I think is also going to be be huge with that. So, in addition to our more standard. Uh, we've invested. We we actually have invested in Veggie Grill and also in Shook, So we've done, which is a uh, fast casual kind of Israeli themed restaurant in Washington D.C. That's gotten really great reviews. I think they won best fast casual restaurant in D.C. Yeah. So if you're listening to this and you're in D.C., go get it. It'll help my uh, help my investment. So I appreciate that. Um, so so you know we're 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 more open to that. Um, And I also think it's important, particularly for some of these other areas that are not quite as direct, like, you know, making different food, to show that the vegan community is more about just creating another veggie burger Mm. Uh, and that some of the the types of uh, companies we get into are are cutting edge. Um, In addition, you know, when you get into something like uh, alternatives to animal testing, the dynamic in the market is also very different. It's very interesting because we all know you know animal tests are not reliable. What is it about eighty nine percent of all drugs that pass uh, animal tests fail in human trials? Mm-hmm. Well, that's not just you know obnoxious to vegetarians; it's expensive to drug companies. Yeah. So if you can create a method of testing drugs both for efficacy and um, toxicity, that is more effective you're going to save billions of dollars so in this market we're not working against the big players in the market we're actually working with them and that creates a very interesting dynamic with us so you know we like to show that as vegan investors you know we're not just investing in kale and tofu
1: <laughs> yeah and I, I like that you're looking beyond just food because uh, i think a lot of things need to change of course Uh, I think food is of paramount importance, but I think there is a surrounding tapestry of uh, business opportunities uh, and white spaces that need to be tackled so that we can bring about this change in our food system. So even if you say it's all connected to food at the end, the food or the products itself – are important, but they're not going to solve everything. You need to build this bigger ecosystem around it that's able to support that food, uh, is able to convince more and more people to start eating this way, and is then able to um, provide the right resources and support that's needed to uh, make sure that the the industry keeps growing at the pace that it is growing right now. And I find, and maybe this is just my view, but I, I find sometimes, and it's especially because of what's happened in the last... Three, four, five years, I think, where there's been um, there's been many new companies um, started, get a lot of uh, you know press attention. Some of them have attracted millions and millions in, in funding through multiple rounds, um, making the next best uh, veggie burger, plant based meat, or dairy free alternative. There have been numerous acquisitions in the space, so it's safe to say that the space is hot. Which I think is then leading other people to assume they need to go and join and do the same thing and and kind of jump on that bandwagon and uh, strike while the iron is hot and uh, enjoy this little honeymoon period that's happening where everyone seems to love um, plant-based food um, and I think that's all good. I'm not saying that's a negative. Uh, I think it's it's a it's indicative that something good is finally happening and more people are interested and more people with money are interested. But then it's always – I think it's important to take a step back and say, well, if everyone's chasing the same thing, what are we missing here? And uh, do we then have the danger that everyone's just putting all their money into – very saturated competitive markets, and we aren't opening our um the we aren't setting our sights to other problems, whether it is animal testing or or technology or media, whatever else may be needed to grow this movement uh because now we're you know this is the shiny new object that everyone's chasing so i I know you talked about your investments being more eclectic than most people who I think are investing in this space. Like, I want to get your reactions to that. Do you, do you agree with what I just stated? Do you think there's a, um, you know, because the food movement will go up and down. Right. But the bigger problems still remain.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, I think you need to look at other areas as well. And, and you know, the other thing you always need to be careful about is, is bubbles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you start having more and more companies coming into this market, right now it's great because, you know, the big CPG companies uh are looking to get into this area for a variety of reasons. They generally tend to like to buy companies rather than to develop it internally so so all that's on the the positive side. but you know when you look at food and selling the food, most of the companies are c p g companies and they're selling into you know the same uh stores. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how many plant-based cheeses can Costco or uh, Whole Foods stock? And, you know, I think they can, at this point, stock a fair amount more, but there's a limit to all this. There's a limit also, there's a lot of risk because, you know, everyone's selling into the same place and you could be in Whole Foods today and totally out of it tomorrow. So there's a lot of business risk with that model. So some companies, which is interesting, is looking for different models. You know, do you do B2B or B2C? Can, uh, can online be an alternative mm-hmm. for that? So to get some diversity in that. But again, you know, there's a lot of issues related to things like materials as well. You now, actually, um, yeah, you didn't take a look at them, but I you know, the shoes that I've got actually I got from Hugo Boss, and they're made from pineapple leather, oh yeah, and and it's you know whenever I tell people that I can't tell you how many people have asked me if they can touch my shoes. <laughs> you haven't asked as long me as that. they don't want to taste it, it that's, that's right <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's next uh, but you know that's that's a that's a real area that yeah. uh, you know is there's uh, we've got to develop that as well. Mm-hmm. so you know veganism isn't just about food, food is important. Yep. But veganism is about a whole lifestyle and and filling in other—and you you can even look at, you know, vegan resorts and things like that Mm -hmm. as well. So uh, I think it's a much broader and trying to more narrowly define ourselves as just, you know, the latest veggie burger, I think, really— understates what veganism is about.
1: Yeah, and I think you can have that perspective because of the nature of your fund. I can almost like now, you know, back to getting the investor's perspective. If you're this VC uh, with, a, with, with uh, you know, a big fund compared to yours, which is, I'm assuming, a smaller fund, which is for early stage investments, uh, the they want to go where the market's hot, and if they the, they want to be they want to be part of the feeding frenzy, so they can put their money into companies that is that are going to see a quick return on investment because they are in a hot segment of the market where someone like General Mills is going to come in and buy that company in four years. So the odds of getting their money back are pretty high. So I'm sure a lot of their decision making. And why you're seeing certain segments of the market suddenly get sixty, hundred million dollars in investment is because they are setting, they have got eyes on that company, selling and then uh, getting acquired in in a very short amount of time.
2: Yeah, but but we have to keep some, yeah, we, we have to be realistic about it. I mean, mm-hmm. you your eyes might be set on that company being acquired in four to five years, but in reality, eighty percent of new companies that you invest in are going to fail. Mm. So you know you you never you never think the companies that you invested in are going to fail you know it's always the 80% that someone else invested in but you know realistically that's what you've got to figure and that's why you know when you look at what your expected returns are going to be on any one investment they seem ridiculous you know we want to make anywhere from 40 to 60% mm. and the reason we want to make that is because if 80% of our investments fail yeah. and then another 10-15% of them we basically get either all or some of our money back but we don't really make much of a return then if you want to make a return on your portfolio you need to have at least a couple of big winners that are going to make 60-70% so that you know you're you're shooting for an average return of somewhere like 20% on your whole for- portfolio
1: yeah what you just described is is the classic formula for right. how you make investments, right? So it's uh, you spread your risk, and you're going to have those. You're going to only have a few blockbusters in there, and uh, you've got to factor in that some are just going to be duds over the years. as as, mu- as much as you don't want that, and as much as you're not making investments, knowing which one is going to be a, a a big one, or a, you assume everyone's going to be a blockbuster. Right. Um, but that's you know that's really interesting, especially for those listening that are considering raising around. Firstly, if that's the right thing to do, first and foremost, this is my perspective. My advice would be uh, at least launch a business with as little money as you can possibly do. Borrow from friends and family if you have to, uh, but don't get get don't get institutional investment. Don't go out there until you really want it and you've proven your concept. Um, I'm not to say that that is the right way to do it in every industry, but I think that's, from an entrepreneur standpoint, that's always the safest way to approach it. If you if you can start a business, grow it, be profitable, and keep scaling it without taking outside money, you've won the game of business.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically, if you're an investor, the last thing you want to do is, is take other people's money because... Mm-hmm. You're giving an away. entrepreneur, I'm assuming. Right. Yeah. Right. You, you said investor. That's oh, what, sorry. Yeah. yeah, because you're basically giving away a percentage of your company. Mm-hmm. The reason to take in the investment is because a) you don't have the money yourself, mm. or b) by taking in the money, you can grow faster, so you own less, but of something much bigger. Bigger. But also, the reason why it's important to figure out which investors you want is that you know initially you'll be in control of the company. But eventually, you're going to lose control of the company as you get big enough. And then you're going to be at the it, – it, you can be you know, taken out of your own company if they don't mm-hmm. think you're running your company well. So if you get like-minded investors, like you can have a company where, you know, you want it to be vegan and investors say, you know, great. We'll have a vegan arm because that's what started us. But, you know, now we've got a name and we want to go into, I don't know, like healthy beef or something like mm-hmm. that. And if you don't own the majority of the company, or you don't have investors who, along with you, mm. own the majority of the company, those decisions are taken away from you. Mm. So you got to be really careful with that.
1: Yeah, and just a complete side note, since you mentioned healthy beef, uh, I did in the early days when I was my early days of being an entrepreneur, um, I got in, I got in a lot of investment interest from this one investor who said we would put in X million dollars into what you're doing, um, provided you sell uh, sustainable beef from this farm uh, on your website because you have um, so much of an audience. Uh, and obviously I said no, um, But and I've never raised money, so I, I really don't know much about raising money besides uh, talking to people like you. Uh, I don't have firsthand experience at least. But um, I think that's that's the thing to keep in mind in this space as it starts to grow Um is we're going to have to face challenges like that. And, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, people have to pick what, what it is that they're doing and, and stick with it. And uh, and I guess investors have to pick companies um, really after doing some significant due diligence, not only uh, about their business plans and the work that they've done, but also the people behind it and the reasons why they're doing it. So, um, so maybe we can, you know, shift gears into your experience with entrepreneurs. You've obviously made quite a few investments. You've, I'm sure, talked talked to a lot of uh, entrepreneurs who are pitching ideas to you. Um, So we can take this in different directions, but I want to ask you what it is that you typically look for um, in an entrepreneur. Um, Yeah, let's start there. Uh,
2: So you want to find entrepreneurs who have some experience, uh, if they've come from the, the industry itself, how well they understand that industry, that's always a plus, particularly if you're, you want to raise money pre-revenue. And we've had a number of companies we've worked with that have been pre-revenue, but they've had a really good business plan. And the people behind the companies were had done similar things at other companies. So they had a lot of credibility for that. They also have developed prototypes. So for us, I, I just had a meeting with some people who, again, they weren't asking for money, but they were very early stage, well pre-revenue, and they want to know, well, what do they need to do to attract investors? And mm-hmm. basically, what you got to do is you got to make it real for the investor, right? So if you say you're going to develop product, then you know I want to see the product. I want to see that you know how to make it, that you know how to produce this stuff. So making something on a very small scale is not the same to making it in large scale. So I want to get comfortable that you don't have to do it today, but you know how to do that. You have a strategy and you have a plan for that. I also want to know that your business plan makes sense. Another company we looked at, they uh, were looking at products, and their products were all over the place and and like not related to each other. Mm. It's more, you know, the the um, one of the the founders was a chef and like creating all sorts of really great. Uh, products, but when you start looking at approaching Whole Foods or Costco or anything like that, it's like they're going to look at you and say, well, where do I put you? You know, what are you? Mm -hmm. So, and and it's okay over time to develop many different lines. And I like companies who are going to have more than one product, except in certain areas where I think one product is okay, because it gets you more shelf space or different skews Mm -hmm. of the product. But don't tell me, you know, you're doing non-dairy ice cream and uh, soy bacon. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, they might go well together. I don't know. But, you know, certainly in terms of a business strategy, the production side is totally different. So mm-hmm. uh, that's – and that, that tells you a lot just just talking to the uh, the entrepreneurs about do they really understand what they're getting themselves into and mm-hmm. effectively if we invest. We're getting into that as well with them.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it, everyone thinks it's very uh, glamorous to to run a company, and especially recently, to to be involved in the food space, especially if you're a passionate vegan or you're interested in sustainability then it seems like now is the time to go launch your company. And by no means am I saying you shouldn't do that if you have the passion for it. Uh, But you've got to understand that you're entering a space that isn't new necessarily. You may think your product is new. You may think the fact that it is plant-based or vegan is new. But you have to operate within the constructs of the existing food industry, which is manufacturing, distribution, and all the headaches that come with that. And if you think just because you have a little recipe, and you are um, smart and charismatic, that's going to get you far. It will help you, um, but you have to attract people around you who can then fill in those gaps. To un- who understand what it is to get your product into Whole Foods, um, and just having investors is not. Firstly, you have to get the investors, um, and having the team is more important first before you even decide to go take outside money.
2: Right. And the other thing is, it has to be a real team. Like I, we mm-hmm. we've talked to some companies where you know we found that they have gaps, and they have somebody with industry experience who's sort of their advisor. And then you know we ask, well, do they have any equity in the company? You know, what's their connection to it? He goes, no. Well, the, right now they're just an advisor and then you know we looked at it and said hey, we're not comfortable with that and then yep. within a month that person was gone mm-hmm. so you know if you're going to have somebody you can kind of tell when you talk to them how committed these people are who you're looking at key people maybe on the manufacturing the production side or the sales side if those are very typically the areas that entrepreneurs need and you know I can tell by talking to these people how really committed they are to being part of this company. Because if they get up and leave, you know, a month after we give our money, then I'm really nervous with that. Yeah. So those are, you know, what, do you have contracts with them? Have they put money into your company? Because, you know, they love your company. It's the greatest company in the world. They really are passionate about it. And so have you put any money in it? Well, no. Mm. <laughs> so, okay, so then what keeps you here tomorrow yeah. if you don't get, you know, a salary or you don't get paid?
1: Yeah, that's such a crucial point. And um, you know, thinking about people who are looking to start companies or who are looking to get involved in the space, from your perspective, and this may be a tough question to answer, or maybe an easy one depending. Um, but if you could pick, well, let's assume I'm I want to start a new company. If you could pick uh, one or two, or maybe even three, ideas or white spaces that you definitely see that there's not enough attention. Um, being paid to by entrepreneurs, which ones would those be? It could be in food, could be beyond food.
2: So in the food space, I still think there's a lot of space for plant-based cheese and plant-based yogurts. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are quite a few plant-based yogurts out there, but no one seems to have really captured the space. I think the last plant-based yogurt that was universally looked at as the market leader is now out of business, whole soy, uh, and everyone still pines for whole soy. So, uh, you know, the next person who can develop whole soy, if you're if you're doing something like that, let me know. I also think the plant-based cheeses, they're still, you know, doing something that's like the hard cheeses, mm. like the Swiss or the cheddars that really are, uh, and not like loaded with uh, tons of coconut oils and things like that because those are out there and those are, from a taste standpoint, uh, are pretty good. But mm-hmm. just to, like the cashew-based cheeses and all that, those are good, but those are the artisanal cheeses. Yeah. So it's something that can be more mainstream, I think. Um, there's still a fair amount of room in that area. The plant-based milks are very, it's a crowded field. Mm-hmm. so And there are some really big players in that, so I think it's hard to to get space in um, in that area. Uh, you know, I'd like to see more companies going to the B2B space where you're mm-hmm. providing an ingredient. So, uh, like, um, Just Scramble, mm-hmm. uh, they can sell at retail, but a lot of what their, their objectives are is to sell it in uh, to commissaries. It can be sold as an ingredient in other products. So those type of things, I think, can be very powerful. It's also... Uh, a different, for, for companies like us in terms of investing, it's a different risk model. You know, if you go into CPG, everyone has a, the exposure to basically the same supermarket. Mm. If you're going now into the B2B space, then it changes the risk. It's a, a, a different type of sale. You don't have to worry about one buyer from a supermarket who decides they don't like you for whatever reason that you have. Now, you know, there are issues with margins and so on yeah. in the different markets. Um, Outside of the space, we're really still interested in the organs on a chip and alternatives Mm. to animal testing. I'm very interested, and we we only have the one cultured leather, but I'm very interested in uh, alternative materials. I think there's a lot of space for that. I think uh, even if you look in the car industry, uh, even companies like Jaguar, for example, Mm -hmm. and Lexus, they're touting uh, their... Uh, eco leathers, which are not leathers yeah. at all. I wish they would put on the steering wheels as well as on their <laughs> seats. That way I could actually buy a car that's like a little upgraded. But uh, <laughs> until they do that, the answer is well, no. you have the Teslas now. You do. You do. But I don't know. I won't get into that. Um, my Tesla is circling the uh, the solar system somewhere. I think. Oh, you've got a Model 3. So we can go on a complete
1: tangent now because I'm car obsessed. So uh, uh, okay. yeah. uh, we, we don't need to get into that, though. We'll save that for another episode. Yeah.
2: But I think the material side is, is really mm-hmm. a, big, a big area to do. I mean, there, there are so many other social issues related to materials as well, particularly things like leather and the tanning mm. process, as well as the animal and the animal rights issues all, all around. That as well, so I think that is an industry that de- desperately needs uh, to be reformed.
1: Yeah, and uh, it's it's um, I'm surprised they haven't been, and you know just to stick on the car industry thing, it's it's such a such a huge opportunity there, to if you can get into that space and provide i mean you have cars with this leatherette basically is the only option and only a few companies even offer it the rest is cloth and then leather is considered to be the luxury option and i have the same problem pet peeve of mine is it doesn't you can make better materials that that can be the same touch feel without the environmental destruction without the terrible chemicals and pollution involved in leather production and of course it is the skin of an animal after all so uh, i think most reasonable human beings would agree they don't really want that leather they just want that luxury look and feel which at this point in time one would assume there'd be enough companies out there producing high quality material so i think it's a huge space it's going to become bigger i think a few years from now there're going to be many players in that space so i'm glad i'm so glad you brought that up um beyond that do you see uh you know you did mention restaurants for on food but it sounds like you only invest mostly in In sort of chain restaurants that have the ability to scale versus standalone or one-offs.
2: Yeah, I mean, given that we're a venture capital firm, uh, there's got to be an exit. So we get lots of requests for someone who has a great idea for a vegan cafe in various parts of the world, everywhere from like Bulgaria, the UK. So you know, you get all sorts of, and you know, the the returns on on that are you know, it's okay, but you know. We're looking for a way to exit, and there is no way to exit a one off restaurant. So, if you want to do that and want to get investment in, generally you go for a different type of investor. You know, friends and family could be one, but there are investors if you want, depending on if you want it to be like a cafe versus like a high end restaurant. And generally you get more local investors because if I've invested in a you know, fancy local restaurant. One of the reasons I'm doing it is because I want to bring my friends there and have a table and have them come up to me as the owner and say, gee, you know, it's <laughs> great. And, you know, as a VC, I don't care about that. You know, yeah. I, I care about the return. Mm-hmm. So it's just, you know, it's not a bad thing to do. I mean, you can have one chain that has 50, uh, 50 restaurants open, or you could have 50 one-off restaurants. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. But just from an investment standpoint it's a it's a different strategy
1: great um so what what's next for veg invest um, and for you in in general as it relates to this space what do you can you give us a sense of uh veg invest plans and focus for the next uh, couple of years I know there's some new things in the works um, you may or may not want to get into it but uh yeah if you to the extent you can share what's your immediate next steps so or your short-term plan.
2: Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, what's needed is is to continue on creating an ecosystem for uh, vegan companies to develop their products and to start manufacturing their products and mentoring and so on. So I think that's really what we're looking at. And that's, I think, the project that you are kind of, sort of referring to is uh, one we call Outermost House, which is an incubator that we're setting up in uh, Berkeley California my uh my partner in uh, Veginvest Amy Trakinski, is the one who's leading that at uh at Veginvest and the idea behind that uh the incubator is that you have a lot of companies who either have gone through what they call accelerators, where they've done mm-hmm. some initial development of product, they've gotten kind of advanced, they've worked out a lot of the the kinks in, in the product, or they've done it on their own, and now they need a place to uh, get it ready for market. And really, there's no place that's really integrated for them. That they can have really all they need in one place. There are like bio labs in some place. There's commercial kitchens in other places. Some of them have equipment. Some of them don't have some of the key equipment like extruders and things like that. So what we're trying to do is bring all that together in one location in Berkeley, and try to be uh, try to provide that for companies so that they have more of a, an opportunity to succeed. Uh, and and grow and get mentoring and and build programs around that. so hopefully you know that will be up and running, I don't know you know somewhere first quarter of next year or whatever. we don't really have a date yet for that. we're just fi- we've finalized the plans, we're just uh getting ready to to start the construction with that. so that's that's kind of the big thing, but that that's kind of the philosophy of that mm-hmm. we have. Is that we want to be able to mentor these companies. So whether it's a portfolio company of Invest, having Outermost House as a resource, we think can help companies grow and link up to mentoring uh, networks and uh, potentially be more successful.
1: You know I, that's a great idea, and of course we are going to probably don't have time today to get into details. But I'll I'll hopefully have Amy back on to talk about that. Um, something that I think is is needed in the space, and the time is right. Uh, would you be limiting to companies that VegInvest has invested in or, or you're just you're just going to basically yeah, no, seed it, companies and see how it goes?
2: Yeah, it, it'll be for it, – we'll have a number of different screens. Mm-hmm. Whether VegInvest invests them or not is uh, not – I don't know if it's – I wouldn't say it's not one of the screens. We yeah. haven't decided yet, but we certainly will have companies in there that we have not invested in and ones that we invested in. We What we really would like is to have companies that are going to be impactful – to the vegan movement that can help take animals out of the system. Uh, So hopefully we can fill it with companies like that. Mm. Um, And so, you know, we'll see. We've we've gotten a lot of interest in it yet, but, you know, obviously we're not ready to— to uh, start taking people in.
1: Yeah, very exciting for people who are um, have entrepreneurial aspirations or looking to do something big and different. Well, you now know things like that are coming. You're going to get the support, the resources, the help, perhaps even the investment that you need. Um, you just have to work on the right ideas and, and come up with a good plan. So it's just becoming easier and easier for people to step into this space and do big, impactful things. And, and I don't think um, that could have been possible without, people like you who started seeing these opportunities very early on. And yes, there have been bigger funds and investors that have now jumped onto this space and are involved in doing really big, interesting things. But um, uh, I think you, what, what was unique about the way you approach it and the way you've done things so far is that you are always thinking outside the box in a, in a funny, in a weird way. I wouldn't say outside the box as much as you've been always very clear that you want to encourage more vegan products, period, Whether and vegan solutions. So whether it is to animal testing, whether it's to materials or food, which definitely makes you, amongst a few others, a little unique compared to a lot of the bigger funds that are around. So um, for people who are passionate and people who are aligned, I think... Um, you're the guy to talk to for sure. So uh, firstly, I think it's it's amazing that you're doing this work and I, and I think it's going to get even more interesting in the years ahead. Um, and speaking of years ahead, uh, when you look far off into the future, right? I know we've been talking about investors and investment horizons, but this is not so much in terms of ROI as much as it is about um, your vision for where you want things to be uh, and the reason why you even do what you do right now and why you even started being vegan and and got interested in the space, so if you think that we get it right, you get it right, your companies that you've invested in succeed and change our food system change um the the materials industry as well and where we all are driving cars, whether it's a Tesla or not uh that's that's now made of something that's not an animal skill and skin or not a byproduct of that industry what is your vision for the future if we all get it right, say the year 2050? Because, you know, I'd give that year because we'd be, we'll would be, we be in a great place or we'll be in a very bad place. So if things go right, what is your beautiful utopian vision for 2050?
2: Yeah, 2015, I think you'll be in a beautiful place. I did mention I'm 62, so I probably won't be in <laughs> such a beautiful place. Uh, hey, keep then, up that well. <laughs> healthy, whole food, plant-based diet. <laughs> well, you know, th- that's sort of an interesting uh, question because uh I think that what we're looking at in terms of veganism and vegan products is vegan is is phase one. Mm. Uh, you know, one of my concerns about where things are going in terms of the products is that a lot of the products that are out there are becoming fairly processed. You know, they're vegan, but they're being very, but they're very processed, and they have you know not necessarily the healthiest ingredients and so on in them. So, you know, my my fear is a is a backlash mm. uh, that's going to come from consumers saying, hey, you know, everyone always says mm. veganism is healthy and I've gone right. vegan and I'm having these great burgers every day. And, you know, I finish up with my coconut yogurt at the end of the day and all that. And I've gained 20 pounds of my cholesterol through the roof. It's like, yeah, because, you know, you're basically eating a lot of junk food. Mm-hmm. And so I think Creating that expectation, in my mind, is, is an issue. I think what really I'd like to see happen in the future is the ability to take actually healthy foods and get people to want them. So, you know, the problem that we have now is companies, and you can't blame them for this, they are saying, well, let's give people what they want, you know, what they think is tasty. That's what they're going to buy. Absolutely right. The problem we have is what people want is generally not all that healthy for them. What we've got to figure out is how we get people to want what is healthy. And so that gets to be a really sticky and thorny problem to figure that out. And that's where I hope, like in 2050, we can get past vegan product 101 and get to the next stage where what people will crave and what we'll be able to produce actually fulfills the vision of it being good for the animals, good for the planet, and being good for people.
1: I love that you brought that up uh, because—and this is—we can add another hour to this podcast just talking about that. But I I, I love that you ended with that because I think— it's crucial that we start thinking about that now. We may not have the solutions to that at the moment, but for anyone who's looking ahead and is looking to create long-term solutions to the problem that problems that ail this planet, including especially the people on this planet, then we have to create a sustainable food movement, not just from a, a, a ecosystem or environmental standpoint, but also from a health standpoint. So, uh, and I and I it's another reason I I really appreciate your thinking on this is because. Um, you're not afraid to say that. Um, you're not afraid to call it like it is and say that we've got to, we can't ignore that, you know, sugar, salt, and fat, is, and, and oil is, is sugar, salt, and oil may be vegan, but it is still sugar, salt, and oil. And every scientific study out there knows that excess of that is not good for you, even if the product doesn't contain meat, dairy, and eggs. Um, so I th- I'm glad you brought that up. And I think it's a great point for us to close out as well, because um Anyone listening, anyone focused on this space, even if you have a company right now that has products that don't meet those criteria, I think you should think of your products as the 1.0 version of it and you should keep striving to use science and technology and um, educating people and and working hard to make sure that that next big veggie burger or uh, yogurt or whatever it is is not only just vegan, but is also uh, good for people and and going to add to uh, solving some of the health crisis that we're facing uh, globally right now and will continue to face in the years ahead. So I appreciate that insight, and um, and and I think it's a great place for us to end today. But Jody, this has been a very insightful conversation. Uh, I will look forward to having you back on and talking more about the trends and investments in the space because I think you have some tremendous insights over there. So, thanks you, thank you once again, and uh, and I'll have you back on soon.
2: Thanks for having me.